So if you find yourself in Judges, go a little further. If you find yourself in 1 Samuel, go back just a tiny little bit. And it's the exciting conclusion to Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have, brought, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, as the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I don't need that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, my kids love that show, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. 
It's a Netflix show. You all seen Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events? All four of you. I used to love it myself until I realized the angle of the show. Every single episode was the same dumb thing over and over and over. The Baudelaire kids are going to fall prey to one of Count Olaf's not very clever disguises and then end up in another of a long series of unfortunate events. Uh, just one catastrophe after another with no apparent resolution. Apparently it has been resolved. My kids tell me uh, it came to a, a satisfying conclusion. Um, but it can be frustrating to watch characters that you've come to love and that you're rooting for constantly be prevented from getting to where they want to be. The story of Ruth is not too dissimilar from that. It is a series of setbacks. In the past 12 months, I've experienced a first world version of this, I think, a bunch of times just on my short trip home from the office to home or out to lunch or something. In all my life, and maybe in all of your life, have we ever seen road work take as long as it does here in the Roslyn Valley? Goodness, it's getting old. But countless times I've hopped in the car, uh, you know, heading home or whatever, and just sort of had my brain on autopilot. I go down here, and I take a left on Colonial, and I, you know, get almost all the way to Susquehanna, and then I have to turn around and come back because the street is cut off at Susquehanna. So I turn around, and I find another way home, no big deal. But this, this is the story of Ruth, setback after setback, having to turn around, reroute, find another way. God authors our roadblocks to lead us to redemption. This is like the big idea for today, and I think it's the big idea for the whole book, really. God authors our roadblocks to lead us to redemption. Or maybe to say it another way, for Christians, life is a series of setbacks, but eventually the road leads to salvation. Life is full of setbacks and unfortunate events for Naomi, but as Mel just read, she eventually makes it. So in chapter 1, the Lord led this small family into a bitter calamity. There was a famine, unfortunate event number one. So Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons move, only about 50 miles probably, across the Dead Sea to Moab. Sometime after their arrival, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, unfortunate event number two. And her two sons marry foreign pagan wives, unfortunate events three and four. Years later, Naomi experiences the death of her sons five and six. We found out in chapter one that neither of the sons produced any children, events seven and eight. And so she's left with two daughters-in-law. Her life is a series of bitter, tragic calamities. Sometimes I wonder if in our Western wealth, if we can really empathize with what exactly Naomi is up against here in her life. For example, I am definitely worth more dead than alive, I can assure you. And I've told Miriam this too, Not like too frequently, but she knows that I am definitely worth more dead than alive. Thankfully, she's not a money grabber. Uh, But because of life insurance, uh, a surviving spouse spouse can have some financial predictability in the wake of tragedy, right? Uh, But in Ruth and Naomi's day, the emergence of life insurance was still several thousand years in the future. Elimelech was definitely worth more alive than dead which made it really difficult for Naomi to imagine anything other than eking out a miserable, meager existence for the rest of her days after Elimelech's death and then his two sons' deaths. Like, she literally had nothing and nothing to look forward to. No retirement, no light at the end of the tunnel, 
No nice piece of steak, no weekends away, just meager hopelessness. Naomi is empty. She left Israel with no food, and she returns with no sons and no husband. Her belly empty, her soul hollow. Naomi has hit the bottom. And chapter 1 ends with her bitter complaint. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. But when we turn to chapter 2, Naomi is filled with just this little burst of hope because Boaz appears on the scene as a possible husband for Ruth, but not just a husband for Ruth, a redeemer for Naomi too. But Boaz doesn't propose to Ruth. He doesn't make any moves. So in chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth make this risky move in the middle of the night that John described for us last week. Ruth goes to Boaz on the threshing floor for a Sadie Hawkins dance. Not a dance, but Sadie Hawkins-ish. She asks Boaz to redeem her, to to marry her. But right when it seems like all the tension is finally going to go out of the room and it's going to be resolved with Boaz and Ruth riding off into the sunset, this massive plot twist drops. Another unfortunate event. Another roadblock we find out that there is another man who, according to Hebrew custom, has prior claim to redeem Naomi's land and consequently to marry Ruth. Somebody else has rights. Uh, Here's some history for you. In the Old Testament, and you can read all about this from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, that whole weird sandals ritual thing has some other crazy parts to it that you'll find in in, uh, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, including women hawking loogies. But it gave family members the right and even the duty to care for other family members of their family by helping, helping them be able to keep the land in the family. Some of you are turning to Leviticus right now because you just want, you want to test me on this. Test me. Uh, so here we are in the audience watching this play unfold, rooting for this unlikely, unexpected love story. But this other dude is going to step in and ruin everything. We don't even find out his name. Boaz... Uh, in verse 1, there is like, hey, friend, come over here. And we've all experienced this with one another, right? When we forget each other's names, that's why we have that name amnesty uh, Sunday when we have the, the name tags. So we don't have to say, hey, friend, or hey, bro, or hey, dude. We can actually know each other's names. Uh, oh, it's supposed to end happily and beautifully with Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. And now this other punk is going to step in and mess it all up. So chapter 3 ends again in the suspense of another in a long series of unfortunate events. This brings us into chapter 4 for today. Boaz goes into the city uh, the next morning after all that weird stuff on the threshing floor, and he takes a seat at the city gate. This would have been normal behavior uh, back in this day. It's where you could easily find the businessmen doing business. And so Mr. What's-His-Face shows up, and Boaz lays the situation out before him. Here's the gist. So before... Naomi and Elimelech moved to Moab. They Apparently, they owned some land. Uh, well, upon returning a decade or more later, Naomi still owned the land. But she can see the writing on, her, on the wall. She knows that she's too feeble, too frail, and too old to be able to cultivate that land to make it profitable for her and Ruth. So she's going to sell the land to make enough profit to live off of. But the first right to that land went to the closest of kin. Boaz was close, but not as close to this guy, Mr. What's-His-Buckets, all right? So Boaz tells this dude that he can buy it and take the inheritance that rightfully belongs to him first. And What's-His-Buckets says, okay, I'll take it, I'll redeem it, I want the land. 
And most of us here just want to say, no, you won't redeem it. You get out of here. You're not going to step in and ruin this whole thing. But he says, yeah, I'll redeem it for Naomi. And it makes sense that the guy wanted it. Uh, For very little money, he could carry out a respected family duty and perhaps enhance his civic reputation. Financially, the investment was a bargain without risk. His little investment would develop into years of productive, profitable harvests. It would enlarge the inheritance of his heirs. How could he lose? But can you imagine if this story ended at Ruth 4.4 with Mr. Who Even Cares riding off into the sunset? With Ruth, but, but Boaz has an ace in the hole to play. So he says, oh, oh, shoot, I, I forgot one more thing. Uh, the day you buy the fields from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. And I imagine in my head that Boaz added a little ahem next here. Ruth, the, uh, <clears throat> the Moabitess, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz makes a couple of really interesting and deft moves here. He intentionally calls Ruth the Moabite because it would have had shame attached to it to, uh, to marry a woman like this since she was considered unclean to the Jews. But Boaz also mentions there in verse 5, if you look at it, perpetuating the name of the dead in his inheritance. The dead that he's referring to there is Ruth's first husband, Mahlon. In other words, Ruth and Mr. Huyawatsit's firstborn son would be recognized as the son of, not his son, but the son of Malone, Ruth's first but deceased husband, if you remember. So Mr. Who Cares would have understood the implication here. He's, he understands that this child, not him or his kids, would inherit the land and the prophet. It's like one commentator says, if there were to be uh, a child from the relationship with Ruth, the Redeemer would lose the field and there would be no benefit to his own children in a state to compensate for the costs involved in taking care of Naomi and Ruth. In other words, Mr. Huzi-Wutzi, I'm running out of options here, uh, was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself and for his family. So after Boaz sort of puts the whole puzzle together for this guy, he says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. That's good news. And we as the audience are very happy to hear it. We want to say yes as we watch this drama on these two redeemers and to really savor Boaz's beautiful redemption. He redeemed Ruth, even though it wasn't going to be profitable for him. In fact, it actually cost him. But for the joy of having Ruth and saving Naomi, he did it. It's a whisper of Jesus, is it not? He redeemed us even though it wasn't going to be profitable for him. In fact, it cost him deeply. But for the joy of having his bride, he paid the price. Well, then these two men do this weird weird sandal swap thing and we're left wondering what is even happening. But it would have been kind of like a handshake in the day. It was just a picture of yielding the right to purchase the land and marry Ruth. If this was a play, this would be the part where the audience can't help but busting out into a standing ovation. No dry eyes, no one not clapping. Finally, Ruth and Boaz together. It's done. The world's most unlikely, unexpected love story is now coming to pass. So after all this, Boaz stands up 
he shushes the crowd and he makes this impassioned speech. You can see it there in verse 9. He says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Whoa, what a journey, a roller coaster for Ruth. Think about this turn of events. In 120, we have Ruth the Moabitess. 210, Ruth the foreigner. 213, Ruth the slave. 39, Ruth the servant, wanting marriage. 410, Ruth the redeemed. We've come from Moabitess to foreigner to slave to servant and now redeemed. For Ruth, life was a series of setbacks, but eventually the road led to redemption. Look, all of us, each one of us in here has a checkered past, a sinful history. We can all look back on our life story, no matter if it's a long life story. There's a lot more in the rearview mirror for some of us, less for others of us. No matter what, you can look back and you can see roadblocks. You can see mistakes. You can see sin. But you can always know that God is rerouting you to redemption through those things. The road to Ruth's redemption was rife with setback after setback, many of them heartbreaking and grievous. She buried her husband and her two sons. Imagine the pictures in her mind she had of those three coffins of men that she loved dearly. But now, now Ruth has been redeemed. That was Naomi's uh, redemption. Now Ruth has been redeemed. So they move forward and they get married. And yet, we come to another roadblock, a potential roadblock on the way to redemption. This story, I think, Ruth could not, for one reason or another, the text doesn't say, conceive in marriage for the 10 years that she was married to Malo. And this suspense is meant to nag at the back of our minds. And I should say that if this is your experience right now, if you cannot bear children and you would like to, I'm so sorry. I can't answer why. God opens and closes the womb. One day you'll understand why it was you who had to suffer through this grief of barrenness. But right now I know it's just hard. It's just sad. I'm sorry. And I, I, I pray that, I prayed this morning that God would grant you grace to keep going. And I pray that he might even grant you children unexpectedly. A couple of weeks ago, I read part of the lyrics of an old song to us. And perhaps they resonate with you or at least can provide some hope for you. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This is the soundtrack to Ruth's story. And just as a spoiler, it's the soundtrack to your story too. At the end of it, at the end of your life, you will sing and celebrate this over and over and over again. And one other stanza from that song anticipates the next fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. So the question lingers. If Ruth didn't have any children with Malone, could she now with Boaz? And we get this amazing prayer from the crowd that had gathered to take in this whole scene. You can see it there in verses 11 and 12. Look with me. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Now, do you remember the story of Rachel and Leah? 
these sisters were uh, super productive, as it were. They raised up 12 sons, and became, which became the 12 tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel. So they're praying that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, that Ruth would have a child with Boaz, and that they would have a family and a family line that would be like that. They're praying that Ruth would be like that and have significant, important offspring, which is in fact what comes to pass. Look at verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, in, in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. But look at that little phrase, and the Lord gave her conception. That's an interesting take right there, isn't it? See, throughout this story, the Lord has been a background character. Of course, his extraordinary grace is seen all over the story in ordinary moments. That's kind of the point of Ruth, is that God is at work even in your most ordinary choices and moments. But only twice, in chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 4, verse 13, only twice does he move in the story to act explicitly on behalf of his people. And it's to meet the two major needs of the story. There are two major needs that get met in the story. God intervenes to meet both. It's food in 1.6, uh, and then fertility in 4.13. You can check me on that. In 1.6, the Lord visits his people and gives them food. In 4.13, the Lord visits Ruth and grants her fertility. Without food, they die. Without fertility, the family line would die off. And we all know now on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus, at this point in history, that our hopes for a savior would have died off too if God would not opened up her womb and granted her conception. And now that looks like a great ending to the story right there. Verse 13 would be an awesome way to end the story. But the story of Ruth does not end with Ruth as the main character on, left on the stage. Naomi of the drama. And I think it's because the author aims to show us that God authors our roadblocks to lead us to redemption. And we see that most clearly in the life of Naomi. The story begins with Naomi losing in a big way. Now it ends with her winning in a big way. It began with death, ends with birth. She starts empty, ends full. She begins hungry, ends satisfied. Her sons die. A son is born. But whose son is it really? Whose son? Well, it's a Ruth's son, obviously, right? But read carefully. Look with me. Look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Wait, what? Why is it told like this? This is not an oversight by the author. He didn't just lose himself or forget himself here and forget who had the kid, the 80-year-old or the 40-year-old. It's told precisely like this to demonstrate for us that though life is a series of roadblocks, of unfortunate events, eventually the road leads to salvation for all those in Christ. This interesting description of Obed as Naomi's son, not Ruth's, is here to crystallize for us Naomi's complete reversal of fortune. In this moment, it had to have dawned on Naomi that the part of the plan God authors your roadblocks and your redemption, and you can trust him. This is one of the hardest truths Christians are called to believe, that the worst is actually part of the plan, that the pain we endure is under God's control. 
But listen, the story of Ruth tells us that there is nothing in your life that you experience, no pain that you endure, no sickness that you suffer, no death you observe that falls outside of God's control. No motorcycle gangs fall outside of his control. No reemergence of COVID, no monkeypox, no politically disadvantageous outcome, no nothing. And when you draw your final breath and finally see things from God's perspective, as hard as this may be to believe on your road with all of your roadblocks, you won't want to change a thing. God, in his infinite wisdom, authors our roadblocks to lead us to redemption. The book of Ruth exists to show that God is always at work in your darkest hours, able to overcome your most difficult obstacles and bring you to worship the great grandson of Obed, Jesus Christ, the true redeemer. Our providences may be bitter, but sweet will be the flower. I think it was Tim Keller who said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly, we would ask exactly for what God gives. This past week, I read of a man named John Jowett, who in 1912 was pastoring Fifth Presbyterian Church in New York City. He was teaching a class on preaching, which may disinterest most of you in here because you don't really listen, uh, has some relevance because it helps us see what the author is trying to do as he or she wraps up this unlikely, unexpected love story. Here's what he says. A great preacher is one who is able to look at the horizon rather than at an enclosed field or at a local landscape. He has a marvelous way of connecting every subject with eternity past and with eternity to come. It is as though you were looking at a bit of carved wood in a Swiss village window, and you lifted your eyes and saw the forest where the wood was nourished, and higher still, the everlasting snows. If the story ended with Obed on Naomi's lap, it would be a wonderful, beautiful story. It would be like those little figurines on the windowsill. But the author does not leave it there. Knowing that the worst was part of the plan and knowing that things have worked out for Naomi, he doesn't leave it there. No, he lifts our eyes from the carved wood on the window to the forest and then even higher to the snowy mountains. If in God's providence the worst was part of the plan, then you can always know that the best is yet to come. The worst is part of the plan, but the best is yet to come. From Ruth's perspective, from Boaz's, from Naomi's, they are simply raising a little boy, maybe like many of you are, just downstairs right now in the kid's wing. Just mundane life, right? Raising kids, doing life. But in reality, they are raising a little boy who will produce Israel's future king. And now here's the crazy thing to wrap your mind around. Naomi probably almost certainly never discovered this until glory. I bet Naomi thought when her life ended that she'd fully graduated from empty to full, from hungry to satisfied, from bitter to sweet. And at some level she had. Her fortunes had changed, but it was even better than that. And I'm betting she passed away before she knew just how deeply, and she didn't even realize how good the best was. She died too soon. This is why I said earlier, if you knew all that God knows, you wouldn't change a thing. There's not a single detail of Ruth's story, of Naomi's story, that could have been altered even slightly prior to this point that would have caused the story to end more joyfully than it does. 
This may be the most important lesson, are intimately tied to the story that God is writing. And he is weaving all of our stories together into this cosmic tapestry that will tell a story far greater than our own individual stories. You are a a, a part of something that is larger and better and more beautiful than you even realize. We, like Naomi, may pass before we fully understand all of the connections. But make no mistake, there are connections. Because of God's hidden kindness, our lives always mean more than we can possibly imagine. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary stories of our lives and the extraordinary story, the extraordinary story of God. The worst is part of the plan, but the best is yet to come. But this little story is like a little tributary of mercy that feeds into an ocean of redemption. Let me show you what I mean. It's like I read from one author this past week. Unbeknownst to Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, unbeknownst to Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, cosmic issues are afoot. I just couldn't leave that word afoot alone. If you read afoot, you gotta, you gotta put it on screen for whoever you're talking to the next day, okay? Cosmic issues were afoot. Cosmic issues were afoot, and they didn't even know it. Jesus untangles all of this afootness for us. But now listen, you're going to have to work with me here. You're going to have to work hard for a sec to see this. So don't go soft on me. This is glory. This is us collectively shifting our eyes from the windowsill to the snowy peaks of the Alps. But Jesus says in Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them in a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Okay, Uh, so far, so good, right? They rightly understand that the Messiah will come from David's line. And I'll show you how they know that in a second, but let's keep going in Matthew 22. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put uh, your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) So Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 here, uh, where David, who was the Lord, the king of Israel, calls another character in this psalm, Lord. I don't know if this passage has ever confused you, but the ending of the Ruth story gives us the key to unlock our understanding of this of why the Pharisees were so perplexed here and scared off by Jesus. The claim Jesus is making here is that he is both David's son and David's Lord. David's son and David's Lord. The son part is easy to understand, right? He comes from the family of David. Jesus is one of his great, 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 great grandsons. Easy enough to understand the son part. But what about the Lord piece? What would have, this is what would have troubled the Pharisees who were sitting there hanging out with Jesus. So here's the main question, and I'll give you the answer too. How could this lowly carpenter Jesus claim to be both David's subordinate son and his superior Lord? (laughs) And why does it even matter? Because Jesus wants us to see that before he ever showed up on the pages of human history, and this lends credence to his claim that he is, in fact, God incarnate. I'd like to argue that the author of Ruth, though they didn't know all of the explicit implications, knew that something unique was going to happen as a result of Obed being born. Even more unique, perhaps, than just being the grandfather to David. Cosmic issues were so afoot. And I believe this because of who the author says the Redeemer really is in this story. 
You might think, duh, it's Boaz. Just, we thought, just like we thought, duh, Obed was Ruth's son. But actually, the text says, Obed was Naomi's son. Let's find out who the Redeemer really is in the text. I mean, Boaz does call himself a Redeemer in chapter 3, verse 12. But look at what the text actually says in chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And at this point, you might be saying, Yeah, go Boaz. You deserve it, bro. Be renowned and stuff. But keep reading. Verse 15. He, and we still all assume it's Boaz at this point, he's sure of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, here it is, has given birth to him. Wait, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. The daughter-in-law, Ruth, gave birth to the Redeemer? You'd assume it would say, for your daughter-in-law married the Redeemer, right? Boaz. This changes the whole way we read the story of Ruth and how we understand ultimately that the best is yet to come. The baby is the Redeemer, not Boaz. He's seen as a Redeemer because of his relation to David, Israel's greatest king. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Then the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So they include that little detail there just to like, connect him to somebody important. They want to let us know that he's connected, related to David. This revelation right here is truly one of the greatest pivot points of history. It's hard to get our heads around it now, but this little ordinary love story is life-altering. This right here is how we know that there is hope for us beyond the cute baby and the happy grandma, and there's hope for us beyond the grave. So why is baby Obed, Obed the redeemer, according to the author? Well, at one level, just practically speaking, he has life, a life-giving reality to Naomi in her old age. But there's a deeper level of meaning here. Let me try to pull some threads together for you. Uh, Obed will be the grandfather of David. Find that in Ruth 4. And then elsewhere in 2 Samuel, we read that David receives a promise that his son will rule over an eternal kingdom. So you've got Obed, who has David, and then David's son is going to rule over an eternal kingdom. We know who David's eventual son is, right? It's Jesus. And the, the name of the son, back to Ruth 4, will be renowned in Israel. Now, Obed's renown or fame wouldn't come directly because of him, not because of Obed, but because or as a result of his connection with David. Uh, it's like when I walked through the halls of Roslyn Elementary School. I'm not Josh there. I'm Eden's dad or Ellie's dad or Evie's dad or Nora's dad. My fame there is only related to who I, am, who I am related to. My worth there has nothing to do with me. It has to do with those four little girls. I'm famous there only insofar as they are famous there. Same for Obed. Uh, his worth and value in this story is ultimately tied to who he's related to. And David, as renowned as he was, as famous as he was, his fame wouldn't come directly from himself either, but as a result of his relationship with his eventual son, Jesus. Obed is the redeemer of the story because he will redeem by bringing forth the redeemer. That's why this little baby is a redeemer and not Boaz. This is partly why, this idea is partly why we introduced that new song recently that we've been singing, My Worth is Not in What I Own, to remind us that our identity isn't tied to us, 
but to who we know. I'm famous in Roslyn because of my kids. And I can lay down my insecurities in this life. The Redeemer, not Boaz, like we might expect, is a mind-blowing little seed that'll grow up into a cosmic tree of redemption. The true and better Redeemer, Jesus, was baked into the cake thousands of years before he ever set foot on the earth. Even right here in this little unexpected, unlikely love story. Obed is the Redeemer because he is the true Redeemer's ancestor. The story points forward to David, David points forward to Jesus, and Jesus points forward to the resurrection of our mortal bodies. Romans 8, 23, when death will be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21. Naomi's story is that the worst is part of the plan, even right now, when you can't see it and you're having a hard time believing it. But the best is yet to come even when you can't see it. Naomi never saw the best that was yet to come. The worst is part of the plan and the best is yet to come. That is the unshakable truth about the life of those who follow Christ in the obedience of faith. All right, since we're wrapping our time together in Ruth today, I just want to review some of what we've already applied in the preceding weeks and then suggest a new thought or two. Just four things briefly. We are all like Ruth, number one. We are all like Ruth. Ruth was an idol-worshiping Moabitess before God pursued her. She did nothing but nothing to merit God's kindness to her. It was free to her, and it rings true for how God has pursued us, too. Not because of merit, but because of mercy. In her poverty, Ruth was not desirable, but she was redeemed. In our sin, we are not desirable, but we are redeemed. Thank you, Jesus. Second, we can trust the hidden kindness of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Naomi's experience echoes, I think, uh, what I read of a grieving Yale professor whose name was Nicholas Wolterstorff, and he wrote this in the aftermath of his son's tragic death in a mountain climbing accident. He says, the world has a hole in it now. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed could not see before. I don't know what you've faced what you're facing, or what you will face. But it will be hard. It will be unfortunate. It will feel like an unpassable roadblock. But you can know with certainty that God is weaving those threads together for your good. He is authoring your roadblocks to lead you to redemption. And on the other side, perhaps through tears, you will see glories that you never thought that you would see. Surely Naomi, when she looked back through those tears in her eyes, they clarified those coffins that she buried in the ground. They clarified the purpose of them. Didn't take away all the pain, but there was more of an understanding of what God was up to. It will be the same for us. Third, we must never believe the lie that the sin of your past means that there is no hope for your future. This entire series of unfortunate events in this story seems to be custom-built to get a Moabitess into the genealogy of Jesus. You could say that God turned the world upside down to ensure that she'd be in the line. Boaz himself is the son of a prostitute, or at least in her line, but he's in the lineage of Christ. God redeems and uses broken things, like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz. God, in his amazing love, planned to have perverts and prostitutes in his family line. 
Far from distancing himself from them, he has humbled himself to be born into their family. God's not a stiff-arming God. He is near to the broken. It's good news for us. Jesus' genealogy includes prostitutes, adulterers, liars, murderers, Jews, non-Jews. None are disqualified from being used by God. No roadblock of your past prevents your path to redemption. Nothing. And finally, nothing insignificant happens in your story. Remember, coincidence is actually providence in street clothes. Coincidence is actually providence in street clothes. God is powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. God's will for your life is being revealed events. I think we're tempted to believe that God has left us alone, but Ruth is here to rouse us from this unbelief. God was at work the whole time. God's presence may be veiled, but it's there. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, thank you for this book, for preserving it for us for thousands and thousands of years so that we can see that you are powerfully present even when you are apparently absent. Help us to believe that. Help us know that we are unlikely, unexpected converts. Nobody would have tagged us to be the ones that get to to shout your name and your praise and tell others about you. But here we are, all because of your grace and your mercy. Help us live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name. Amen.